coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Your brain will not adapt in the absence of stimulus. So if everything is going great, your brain's lazy. It's like, great, everything's going great. I don't need to do a thing. It's only when you make a mistake, the brain's like, oh, yeah, we got to change something. I got to expend calories to actually modify the neural structure of my brain. That's learning. Delighted to have you on board today. We've got a great guest coming up for you, Dr. Preston Klein. Just before we get there, and as usual, we have to say a massive thank you to Hawora as the overarching sponsor of the show. It provides us with the ability to distill lessons from all of our guests to you, the audience. And alongside that, thank you to everyone who listens, who gives feedback, who supports the show. We are truly grateful when we see a message or interaction or hearing that the show has impacted someone. So just to say, we really appreciate it, and please continue to support the show. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Dr. Preston Klein, co-founder and director of research and education at Mission Critical Team Institute. Newly appointed a visiting scholar in the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative within the University of Pennsylvania, Preston will continue to dig into the neuroscience of learning and teaming. His previous training as a wilderness emergency medical technician meant that Preston has led responses to numerous critical and catastrophic incidents. It was these experiences that were the catalyst for 30 years of academic research on human interaction with uncertainty, the question of why some people make it while others do not. We unpack his road from academia to operational risk management, expeditions, and back to academia. We learn about how to build a trusting and competent team if zombies are going to attack Earth tomorrow, explore uncertainty, and how to employ systems to benefit from mistakes. You cannot learn without the absence of failure. The brain needs this to adapt. Preston discussed his TeamCast podcast with a lens on research for frontline medical workers, managing change, learning disciplines, and conflict management. Uncertainty, fear, and risk is part of the human experience. Learn the rhythm of the waves like elite teams. Learn to body surf and thrive with Preston. Dr. Preston Klein, thank you very much for joining the two of us on the show today. Really looking forward to learning from you and unpacking your story. How are you? I'm very well, sir. Thanks for having me on. Lovely. And we've been doing our background, filling up our whiteboard on your education and where you've come from. It's been quite a journey. Where did it all start for you, really, if you think back? Yeah, it's it's interesting because when people um, see my sort of vitae or resume, they assume one thing. But if you were to go back and talk to my high school guidance counselor, this is not the path they would have predicted for me. They were strongly encouraging me to go into the military or trade school because there was some question of whether or not I was going to graduate high school. Um, and so it's sort of ironic that I got all these degrees, but it happened because um I was uh, I was a kid in trouble growing up in a in a, outside of a city called Detroit, which is a pretty rough city, and um, ended up in front of a judge and a social worker at the age of sixteen doing some things I shouldn't have been doing, and um, 
that social uh, that judge and social worker decided that uh, my problem was that I thought I had problems. So they put me I spent a summer at Special Olympics and then um, did some work later on at the camp for Ronald McDonald um, kids with kids with terminal illnesses. And those those sort of experiences really had a massive impact. Um, and specifically because what I found and this my grandmother pointed this out is that when I was in service to others, I was a lot more happy and content than when I was in service to myself. Uh, and so that seemed to be a pretty clear pathway to contentment for me. And so in the late 1980s, I heard about this crazy job leading 60-day um, wilderness expeditions into the East Coast of the United States, the woods, rivers, uh, et cetera, uh, with kids out of prison, so juvenile delinquents. And so that's what I did for four years. And we led trips uh, up and down the East Coast. I've since led expeditions for a variety of people on all seven continents. Um, and so uh, much of my life was as a wilderness guide. But when you're doing that work, um, one of the things that becomes really apparent very fast is that um, the role of of just learning to navigate uncertainty. And I became really fascinated um, with how people learn to navigate uncertainty. And so I had at that point dropped out of college, but I ended up deciding that, um, well, my boss, actually, I went to my boss and I said, look, these kids have real problems. And in a very wise way, he looked at me and he goes, yep, it's too bad you don't have a college degree because no one will ever listen to you. And so that fall, I walked into the admissions office for Rutgers University, a school, a state school here in the US. And I basically just talked my way into the school. I just said, look, just give me one semester. I know my grades are bad. Give me one semester. If I don't get all A's, you can get rid of me. Um, and they, so they put me on probation. And that semester I got all A's. And then I got entered into an honors program looking at a concept called rites of passage uh, for adjudicated youth, looking for positive ways to help them transition into adulthood. And that was the start. And what did you take from that? That's such an interesting concept to help with the youth. I mean, and it kind of follows on really well from the work you did earlier with, you know, McDonald's and stuff like that. You're giving service to others. We hear about it, but you seem to very much be an exemplar of it. It really came from a conversation with my grandmother. I had a, I was lucky enough in, in all the things that happened in my life to be uh, the grandson of a proper New England grandmother. And if you're not familiar with that, um, proper New England grandmothers can be somewhat more British than the British. Um, uh, the high tea and the whole bit, right? And so uh, cares very deeply about standing up straight and manners. Um, and uh, she was the one who pulled me aside and said, I've watched you struggle. And what I do know is um, that when you are talking about helping other people um, overcome their challenges, you are inspiring. And when you're talk whining about the perceived challenges that you see in your life, you're less inspiring. And so I was like, that's fair. And that's, that's really where it came from. Was your passion developed at that stage to follow academia or was it after saying the master's in Harvard, did you feel like you wanted to dive deeper into that sector or was it just something that happened naturally? It happened very organically. None of this was planned. And so after I finished my degree in Rutgers, I was very disappointed because basically what I found, my research was you actually can't create an artificial rite of passage. You, you have to have the culture the the indigenous or native culture be the ones that created you can't create it artificially and so I was very disappointed myself and in academia and I dropped out of academia for a while 
and went into operational risk management, sort of looking at, because I was leading these expeditions, there's a lot of, you know, energy put into like making sure that you, if you take 16 people out into the woods, you bring all 16 back and they have to be the same 16. I, I checked on that. You can't, <laughs> can't be like swapping people out. Um, and so um, I became fascinated with this question of risk and uncertainty, which was part of this, this idea of risk and uncertainty. And when I went to interview people, which is my way, if I don't know a thing, I just pick up the phone and start finding who would know and start interviewing them. And one of the people I interviewed happened to be the director of the risk and prevention program at Harvard. You have to understand, I had no, no conception of applying to Harvard University. That's a ridiculous idea. Like, if you knew me, that would be utterly ridiculous. I just wanted 15 minutes of this amazing person, Mike Knackle's um, time. So I walk into his office and I and I ask him, so what do you mean by risk? And, and he turns and he looks at me and he goes, well, it's the potential for loss. And I had been doing all this research and I looked up at him and I go, why would people come to school to lose something? And he stared at me and, he, and I thought he was actually going to yell at me. And instead, he talks me into applying to the Graduate School of Education at Harvard. And that's where I spent two years looking at risk and uncertainty. And that's where I really started to understand that some of our base conceptions about what we mean by safe, what we mean by risk, by my secure, are often very uninterrogated, meaning like we haven't spent any time really thinking about what we're talking about. And it has massive implications on the way we live our lives. And to dig into that kind of the risk aversion piece, something we we know quite a lot from our our work in in sport is is the concept of fear of failure. Yeah, and, and kind of what are the parallels between that and maybe the experience that you've acquired in, in the risk and and able to navigate uncertainty space? Yeah, it's it's super interesting. So let me ask you a question. I often ask this to my students, which is, um, do you guys feel or in the audience, do you feel an obligation to keep your family safe? Yes. So let me let me tell you the actual traditional definition, the universal definition of safe. It comes from the Latin salvis. It's one of our oldest words, and it means free and secure from danger, harm, injury and risk. And I'll say that again, free and secure from danger, harm, injury and risk. So having heard that definition, can you give me a moment in your life from the time you were born till now where you've achieved safe? Uh, dramatic pause, dot, <laughs> dot, dot. Uh, not sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And so the, the problem is, is that it's, a, it's what we call a metaphysical impossibility. It's a state of being that is unachievable. At any given moment, a meteor might strike, you might get a brain aneurysm, the guy next to you might go postal, you just don't know, right? And so to having an objective state of safe is not possible. And yet that doesn't change the fact that we have this really passionate desire to keep the people in our life safe. But if we take a moment and realize that the words safe and secure have always been linked together, and here's why, the word secure from the Latin securus means free from anxiety and worry. And so what we often talk about is safe, meaning um, it's a prayer, and secure, meaning I'm going to create a sense, a feeling, an emotion of safety. Whether that's an illusion, a delusion, or accurate depends on the tools you use. So when you talk about the fear of failing, the problem, the problem with that is that it's an unrealistic goal of trying to be safe when what you should be trying to do is ride the waves meaning try not to fight the waves, but ride the waves. Every single human is going to make a mistake today. It's the nature of us. 
The question isn't whether we're going to make a mistake. It's what we're going to do with that mistake. So the first thing that springs to mind for myself is Maslow's hierarchy of needs and safety being at the core of it nearly. Should we, from our day-to-day moments, be thinking about we're in our studio here, we're quite safe. I don't think David's going to drop out. There's no grizzly bears in the wilderness (laughs) expedition here. So it's quite secure. So should I be grateful for that? And would that help me be more risk averse? It's a great question, but it's, it goes back to your goals, right? And so when we talk about fear, fear is um, we don't want something to happen, right? And, the, and one of the, the sort of simplest but hardest ways to overcome that is to actually reverse that and accept that it will happen. And so instead of trying to sort of um, protect yourself in that environment, Instead, look around that environment and go, yeah, a mistake will be made today. What systems are going to be put in place to benefit from that mistake? Mm -hmm. So what we know from a neuroscience point of view is that you cannot learn in the absence of failure. Let me say that again. Your brain will not adapt in the absence of stimulus. So if everything is going great, your brain's lazy. It's like, great, everything's going great. I don't need to do a thing. It's only when you make a mistake, the brain's like, oh, yeah, we got to change something. I got to expend calories to actually modify the neural structure of my brain. That's learning. So make more mistakes. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Curious now to, um, you've obviously experienced a lot of education from people. People have given you time. Um, people have you know, served you. You've served others. What really stands out from your from your resume is is leadership in education. That space, you know, you're educating the two of us. So you're asking questions. You're making us reflect and think on concepts. How how important is that to the work that you do? And kind of where does it really resonate through today? Yeah, it's it's actually super important. And so um, the the so for example, you know, the work that I do, um, training instructor cadres of mission critical teams of teams that operate in decision making environments about three hundred seconds or less. All of those instructors used to be operators. So in the world of sports, it's all the players that become coaches, right? And that's a really hard shift to make. And one of the biggest hurdles in that shift is that when you're an operator or a player, one of the things you're judged by is that when a coach or someone in authority asks you a question, you immediately have the correct reply. And that's a, that's a mark of expertise. Once you become an instructor, though, you're not judged on your answers anymore. You're judged on your questions. And so it's no longer, and this is a really hard shift because it's 180. It's a really hard shift to go from when somebody comes up and says, man, I'm stuck, instead of saying, oh, yeah, the answer is four, to be able to instead engage in what's called collaborative inquiry, to instead face them, face both of you face the problem, and then investigate, interrogate, inquire, ask questions. Why do you think that's happening? What's the deeper, deeper sort of mechanisms behind this that we can take a look at? So as a coach who would be in a position like that, who would be educating his players or educating staff, if they're quite novice in terms of their role, is there a phase shift at a certain term where you have to have humility in order to say, I don't know the answer? Or is there a certain point of expertise or mastery where you can actually revert back to that humility? Is it a a natural progress? The more novice you get towards the master level, you can start being more humble. Or is it just you have to adopt that approach from the start? 
It's a great question. So let's just uh, let's break out some terms here, just because I want to be really. You're asking a really sophisticated question, a really important question, and so I want to break out some terms. So when we talk about training and education, we're two different things. Training is for certainty. Education is for uncertainty. We train people to have concrete skills, linear skills, how to use a tool, and we educate people on when, where, and why to use that tool. Right. And so if I'm in a training environment and I know, for example, that if I'm going to swing a bat or a racket or throw a ball and there is a correct mechanism in which to do that, then I can I can instruct. I can tell. Here's what we want to do here. I want to show you what right looks and feels like until you can anchor to it. Once you anchor to it, then we can revert back to it. However, when it comes to the when, where and why to use that tool, there's no fixed rule. It depends. Depends on the context. And so then I have to be engaged in dialogue with you. I got to understand the principles that you are using, what are called the heuristics and the schema that you're using to guide your behavior in those uncertain events. And so what I I need to do be there is in dialogue with you. So I need to be asking questions, listening, and allowing them to ask me questions. In the absence of that, you're you're just going to get stuck on what's known. That's brilliant. Just moving on to that, the uncertainty piece that you mentioned earlier, your phone must be going off the hook and your emails must be full over the last two years. You got the pandemic. You must be a man in demand at the moment. It's um, it's an interesting world for everybody. Just to give you some insight on us, our, our traditional partners, research partners are military special operations, tactical law enforcement, urban and wildland fire and medicine and NASA. And most of those teams we can't talk about. And so much of our research was sort of behind closed doors because we were working with teams who were sort of quiet about discreet professionals, as you say. When the pandemic hit, a bunch of our friends in medicine sort of hit the red button saying, this is bad and it's going to get worse and we need your help. And so we launched, much like many people, we launched a podcast called The Teamcast and started publishing our research. We scrubbed it. Um, sterilized it, and then published it in the show notes. Um, And so a lot of our research started getting pushed out because we needed to reach the sort of frontline medical workers. And one of the things that I am still very concerned about um, is that, you know, when everybody was talking about flattening the curve, if you live in this world, you know that the second curve that's going to happen is the suicide rate. And I'm deeply, deeply concerned about the suicide rate of medical professionals um, Right, starting now for the next year or two, we need to like make sure we got our hands on them because they're going to be going through some very bad times. A huge part of the work that we do here as physios is uh, is built on evidence based medicine. It's kind of how we've been taught, and methods and, and frameworks and models are very much part of that vernacular. And what jumps out for mission critical are those sort of concepts. And and the big question, which is again on your website, everyone can look at you seem to be really good at dealing with future radical change. Yeah. Curious as to, it doesn't have to be the pandemic. It could be, I don't know, I have, I have another kid coming on, on the way, or I have a kid and something unexpected is coming with that child that we didn't think was going to happen, or X, Y, and Z. Where do we start with giving ourselves a little bit of um, relaxation, reducing anxiety, ability to cope and manage that big change that's coming our way? Yeah. So let's, again, let's just talk a little bit about expectations, right? And so people talk about, I want to be part of a high-performing team. Check. Got it. You understand that you can't stay there. 
It's not the way it works. You're going to peak and then you're going to come down. You're going to peak and you're going to come down. And you have to focus on recovery as much as you focus on execution. That means you have to be conscious of it and you have to have some tools in play. One of the things that that we talk about a lot is the concept of liminality. And liminality is an anthropological term that it refers to betwixt and between. I am, things are good right now, and then I'm going to enter this room on fire, and it's going to be crazy, and then I'm going to come back to this. And those transitions can just wear us out, right? And so it's not just the recovery piece, and it's not just the execution piece, but we've got to be really thoughtful on the rituals that we use to transition in and out of those chaotic moments, right? And and they're not complicated. Here's the thing. We got to keep them super simple. So one, there's got to be a mindset that you've got to change your mindset from being, I'm an expert, I should know, which is a fallacy and will just cripple you to, I'm an explorer, right? I'm going into discovery mode. I'm going to go into inquiry mode and I'm going to discover this as it goes and I will adapt as it goes. And here are the tools that I'm going to use. When I enter into it, I'm going to do all the stuff that you guys probably know very well, much better than I do. Mental strength and conditioning, right? Visioning, positive self-talk, breathing, those kinds of things, stretching, food, knowing your glucose levels, all that stuff to give you the best possible chance to navigate that liminality, transition in, do what you need to do, transition back out and keep that cycle going without burning yourself out eight cycles in. Let's say you have that adverse event or something goes wrong. What is your probably advice for someone to process that or to understand it in terms of reflection and growing from that adverse incident? Yeah, it's a great, this man, we are working really hard on this particular question right now. So uh, one of the quotes that, that I've been known for is this idea that all great teams debrief and all bad teams either don't debrief or debrief poorly. And you can use after action review, mortality and morbidity meetings, hot washes, whatever term you all use to make meaning of an event. Over the last two years, working with some teams around the world, my view on the debrief process, the making meaning of an experience has changed a lot. And now, and this is this refers to our mutual friend, Claire Murphy, who's been helping me with this. Now what I'm super invested in and wanting to know more about is, let's say you, you two have an experience, like let's say you have a car crash, right? One of you's driving, the other one's in the passenger seat, head on collision, it's bad, you both recover, right? But there's residual stuff going on. And what becomes important for me, not for everybody, but for me is what story gets told about that event and how is that story crafted? What's the story you tell of your to yourself as the driver or the passenger about each other and about yourself? And what story you tell to each other and what story do you tell the world? How are those stories created? And to do that, you need to do it in a social context. You need to do it with the others who can listen, to be heard, to be listened, to be understood. That's how we make meaning of extreme experiences. And so it's really important. And I'm, this is not therapy. And this is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is literally the learning process. What did I learn from that? And in order to learn, I have to make meaning of it. And one of the ways that humans humans need to talk to one another to make meaning of shared events We've talked a lot about dialogue, making sense and storytelling. Another tip of the hat to you, Claire Murphy, another Irish person. Um, <laughs> communication, very much center point through, through all this, right? If, we're, if we can communicate and understand empathy and emotional intelligence, it helps. Lovely piece on your LinkedIn profile there on the 
on an exploration discovery phase of routine versus critical comms. And it's something obviously you're building out with your team. Would love you to unpack that a little bit so that the two of us can maybe dig into it a little bit more. Sure. And so um, let's say you guys are working on a team, right? And let's say, let's say that you are working with a team and they are, they're younger than you, less experienced than you. And while you're on a team, on that team, you see a threat. And because you're experienced, you've been there before, but they haven't. So they don't see the threat, right? And suddenly you switch into sort of critical sort of uh, response and you start speaking in a really direct way with brief words and projected voice, right? If they don't know why you've switched, you've just become a jerk. If they, if they don't understand that there's a threat because they don't see what you see, um, then you're just a jerk. And and what people have always said to me and how I learned coming up was, oh, yeah, well, you just need to get to know those guys and you'll figure out their tone and their volume and their body language and you'll figure out when they switch. Yeah, but that takes six months to a year. We don't have six months to a year. We're working with teams that are cross-functional tactical swarms. These are teams that are coming together very fast against really complex problems who have critical or catastrophic um, results if not handled well. And they don't have time for us to go, well, maybe Preston just is having a bad day. Preston has to actually brief them at a time and say, look, I'm going to say the word as my, my friend Harry Moffat in Australia will say, with me or go time or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. But you're going to know that when I use that term, I'm switching and you better get behind me because we're going to be starting to move very fast. And I'm not going to be speaking to you as an individual. I'm only going to be speaking to your role. You shouldn't hear anything in my voice that's feedback. You should only hear sort of instruction um, and transactional exchanges. And building into that, if you were to instruct a team or to advise a business or an organization on how to prepare that communication, would you actually get them to run through it as a walkthrough before it happens? 100%. So the way we do it in our classrooms, we get them at a table and we have them build out what they think are their routine communication principles, right? And then we have them build out what they think are their critical uh, communication principles. And then we ask them the following question, how does your team know when you switch, right? And, And by the way, how would you prepare your team to switch? And you notice my language and approach here. I'm not telling them, I'm asking them. It's their team. It's their culture. So for example, I already know that if I were to come visit you guys and spend some time in Ireland, there would be a bunch of stuff going on in an Irish team that I wouldn't see or understand. You'd have to explain it to me. And in explaining to me some of those, I wouldn't get the first try. I'd be like, I don't get it because it's so deeply cultural that I wouldn't see it. Same if you came here. There's some American things that you'd scratch your head at. I'm reading the news. You're probably scratching your head at a lot of things, but, but there's, you know, there's stuff in culture that's so embedded. We don't see it anymore. So I can't come in and tell you, I have to come in and ask you. And when, when we're going into an organization or a team and trying to really improve the dynamics and the cohesion, because we can see there's dysfunction, everyone's not really singing off the same hymn sheet, obviously communication usually is one of the first places we'd look at. It's it's vital that you kind of nail that out. What else would you be looking at to improve functioning of a high-performing team or, or institution? So I'm, I'm currently trying to work on a book, not very successfully because of the chaotic world we're listening, looking at, on, on the role of selection and assessment on teams, the kind of teams I work with. 
And over the last 70 years um, of this work, there's been a great deal of research. And if I boil it down to you, it basically, you know, all these attributes and these different traits and everything else, what it really boils down to is trust and competence. Do I trust you? And do I believe you're competent? That's it. Everything else is kind of, it kind of feeds into that. But at the end of the day, the two questions I'm asking is, do I trust you? And are you competent? Here's how we know the that that's right, is that Every team, look at every team, uh, British SAS, right? Or, oh gosh, uh, Navy SEALs, right? If you go back to their founding, when they first started, the way it was founded, every single team was founded, is somebody in authority pointed to somebody and they said, hey, David, uh, I need you to start the next SAS. And you're like, right, what would you do? If if somebody asked you this tomorrow, uh, zombies are attacking, aliens are landing, you got to build a team. What's the first thing you'd do? Find people I trust anyway. That's right. You call your friends. That's what every team is. You're in. You're in. Yeah. It's what every team has always done, right? And and why are you calling your friends? Who's your friends? People you trust and you believe are competent. And so when it comes to communication, if you're communicating in a way because people listen far less than they watch, right? If you're not behaving in a way that projects trust and competence, then it doesn't matter. You can say, oh, you can have the best Braveheart speech in the world, but if you're a jerk, you're a jerk, right? And so it just really, leadership is really about authenticity and it's about the understanding that you've got to earn um, trust and competence every day. And if you make any of those mistakes, you've got to fix it. And if you don't fix it, it'll fester. Something that we look at as well would be that role of the team of high performers being almost confirming of each other. So a confirmation bias in place. How do you ensure that that doesn't happen? So let's say we think we're a great team. We think we have a great studio here. We're doing really well, but two of us are given that opinion. How do you make sure that there's another voice in or there's another critique of that environment? My world is that more and more I'm dealing with what are called emergent tactical swarms. And so the easiest way to understand that is to think about a trauma resuscitation. Somewhere in the hospital, someone starts breathing, stops breathing, or their heart stops. And basically an algorithm will send a group of people, whoever closest in the hospital, um, a, a tone or a text and say, go to room 704. And you'll go as a team and you maybe you've never met before. And this is happening worldwide. And you've got to operate together. And you're going to operate against some really complex adaptive problems, rapidly emergent complex adaptive problems. And you're going to have to innovate very, very fast. So why does that matter? It matters because if you're all white dudes or you're all black females or you're all Guatemalan grandmothers, um, your toolbox will be very limited because you're all the same and you think the same and you can finish your other sentences. The problem is, is that we need cognitive diversity. We need a bunch of different ideas, but we also need cohesion. And those two things together are actually really hard to do. It takes a lot of time to build that. And so we're currently investigating ways to do that. Um, and, and, and it's tricky. Um, and so the, the, to get back to your particular question, the more alike you are, um, the more rapid you can go against tact- technical problem sets, but the less prepared you are against complex adaptive problem sets. The more cognitively diverse you are, the more tools you have in your toolkits, but the longer it takes to build cohesion. And so I, I'm saying all that because in order for me to answer that question, I would actually need to know what problem the team is trying to solve. Because too often, getting back to your point, we've got 
homogeneous teams, clone teams, all white dudes who are like, we're awesome. Just look at us. And they're blind to the fact that they can't, they're not the team to go up against the zombie apocalypse. Cause the only thing they'll know to do is shoot them in the head. <laughs> Preston, you're, you're a wise man. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against you against the zombie apocalypse. I'd kind of <laughs> probably, I'd probably give you a call. Actually, Kieran, you're getting the boot. You're gone, Kieran. Surely you haven't had the answer to everything. You sound like you're someone that, even if you don't, you'll find someone that can help you navigate that time of uncertainty or challenge. But surely you've made a mistake or oh through the years. But can you can you think of one that in particular stood out as a big learning point for you that really brought change into what you do? Yeah, I, you know, what pops, oh my God, there's like a gazillion, right? Um, but uh, a little bit of the fact that I was just talking about this, so it's fresh in my mind. I'll take you way back to when I was a very young leader. We were doing a 14-day canoe expedition, and I was working with some kids. And one of the kids I was working with had a really bad childhood. And one day we came off the river, and it had been a really long day. It had been raining all day. And this kid did a really good job of hanging up their life jacket so that it would dry. And uh, the rest of the life jackets, I don't even know where mine was. We had been swapping them out. And I'm heading to the canoe, and I see one right in front of me. So I grab it. And he turns to me, and he says, that's my life jacket. And I go, and I was tired. And I was young. And I said, it doesn't matter. Just grab one. But in his mind, he had taken the time to dry his, and I had just stolen it from him. And in that moment, I saw it in his eyes where he lost trust in me for a stupid life jacket. And I'm not sure I ever got it back. And to this day, I think to myself, I made that sting, and it still stings because I've never made that mistake again. And so when it gets back to trust and competence, the most subtle things can be catastrophic if you're not paying attention. On that point and on mistakes as well, that's obviously a very emotive event that happened. And it, as you said, the sting is still there. How did you and when did you manage to take an objective view and look back on it? So um, my process has always been that if something is lingering in my mind, right, if something refuses to leave, I'm kind of brutal about it. So I have to be like, okay, so I got to deal with that right now because clearly um, I failed and I'm not going to be able to fix it. That's the other problem. I couldn't go back and fix it. So I've got to figure out what to do with it. And so that's when I started spending a lot of time writing um, and doing a lot of journal writing and just asking, what's the deeper lesson here? And the deeper lesson here was that I was being lazy and I was being self-centered and I need to stop that. And I'm not saying I'm always good at it, but it, it was a reminder like, just remember what this did, this moment of laziness and, and selfishness, what this got. When we speak to people on the show, Rose, curious as to what makes them the person they are and kind of what they do to excel in their respective field, you're obviously helping and giving value to so many different people. What are the habits that give you energy through a day? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's I'm actually going to answer two questions that I heard in there. The first one is what keeps me motivated? Um, and the motivating question is this, they're, they're still out there. So you have to understand, and you're probably familiar with this, but you know, I still remember what it's like to run a 30 day course where it rains for 28 days. Right. And it, and it's the kind of misery that's hard to explain. I know what it's like to put on frozen boots over blood blisters, right. Over wet socks. It's a kind of misery that's kind of hard to explain, but here's what I know. Those guys, those instructors, those men and women, they're still out there. 
the teams are the wildland firefighter guys. They're still out there fighting fires right now all over the world. Medical teams are still there. Tactical law enforcement is still trying to get kids out of bunkers, right? And special operations is still in the middle of nowhere in the suck. And what's motivating to me is that I'm having this nice cup of coffee, which I did not really earn, and they're still out there. So I need to help, right? And that's how I literally think about it. Um, in terms of, of motivating, it's been a really interesting time to answer that question. I've been actually spending a lot of time thinking about it because quite honestly, I find myself kind of unmotivated right now because of the isolation. I'm very um, motivated and engaged by new ideas. And in the isolation of, of COVID, it's been really hard to collaborate, which is really where I, I get excited and get all my ideas. And so I've had to actually make a really like positive, strong effort to reach out and get part of learning communities again and work at it. And um, I'm actually an introvert, so it's it's harder to do, but I know I have to. And what is the what else is exciting? I mean, innovation is something we're always curious about because we are we try to keep innovate innovate or die. That's where we are. With what we're trying to do is with our business. Um, what are the big things out there that really spark your interest? Maybe even within Mission Critical or or elsewhere. The thing that I'm uh, a couple, there's a couple of things we're working on right now, which I'm excited about. One of them is what's called the how, why problem. And it's a learning problem. And, and I'll give it to you. This is the way, best way to explain it. In the Marine Corps, they train all their soldiers how to do something and they don't need to worry about why until much later in their career. Just got to know how. In, in medical school, they teach you why to do something and they tell you, you don't need to know how until much later in your career. Those are two different models, training model, education model. As I mentioned before, we're working with teams that are that are going up against the zombie apocalypse that need to know why and how at the same time. And so we're investigating how the brain learns in those kind of environments, or we're hoping to investigate, I should say, we haven't started yet. We're hoping to investigate what are the tools that we can hand back to the world and say, look, if you're in this rapidly emergent environment, um, what are some things, here's some things you can do to help you accelerate your ability to navigate this emergent problem. Um, so that's one. And the second one that I'm excited about is what's called the, we're calling the day one project. So over the last 20 years, since 9-11, we've learned a lot about high performance teams, but some, a lot of that isn't going back to day one of their training. So boot camp. think about boot camp in any of those words, just generically boot camp, first day of work. So we're interviewing all these gray beards and blue hairs, men and women who have been around a long, long time. And we're saying, if you could go back and redesign your first day, what would you include? And what's cool about it is the stuff in your world that would be sort of obvious, maybe, which would be sleep, nutrition, hydration, uh, um, uh, agility and mobility, those kinds of things. But what we're also getting is feedback from folks like, I wish somebody taught me how to recover from error. I wish somebody taught me how to do conflict management with people not on my tribe, not in my tribe or on my team. I wish I I knew how to have a concrete learning discipline so I was getting 1% better every day. So those are the kinds of things I'm excited about. That's brilliant. And you can see your motivation, your energy coming through when you're speaking about them. If we were to fast forward maybe 100 years, 50 years, and people were speaking about us and particularly speaking about you, what would you like them to say? Oh God. I mean, in like in an ideal world, all of this is about combating fear, right? Half the problems we have in the world right now is because people are afraid. And so any tool that we can help them develop 
to stop being afraid, to understand that uncertainty is part of the human experience, right? It, it's risk is part of the human experience. It's, it's it, the, the analogy I always give is if you go, if you're standing on land, you're on land. And if you're in the ocean, you're in the ocean. But if you're in the waves, if you're in the surf zone, you're not on land and you're not in the ocean, you're in the surf. And you either learn the rhythm of the waves or you drown. And a big part of the work that we have in elite teams is learning them how to body surf, how to ride the waves in a way that's not just surviving, but thriving, but excited, but fun, right? And that would be, for me, that would be the dream, right? At the end of this, to have some tools so people would be less afraid to live their full life. For everyone that comes on the show, Preston, we always ask, um, where did you surf? No, we don't ask that. We say... um, for someone who's very much embodied it for so long and is making sense of it at a very deep level with a lot of different people inquiring about it, what does high performance mean to you, Dr. Preston Klein? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've never been asked this question, and it's, uh, you, I'm surprised I've never been asked this question, actually, and I have to think about it for a second. It's really interesting because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stall while I talk about this to sort of try to figure it out out loud. But somebody asked me... Um, What's a, what's a thing I now know that I don't know how I know it? And the example I gave was if we went out into um, a football pitch and you put 10 teams out on that pitch and thus three of us were standing there staring at those teams, we could you, us three could tell which ones aren't doing well. We could tell from a distance. We could tell by their body language, their space between them, the volume, the way that they were interacting with one another. I don't know why I know that or how I know that, but I know it with certainty. And that's the thing about high performance is it's really deeply human. It's it's not about skills, actually. It's about engagement and cohesion. It's about chemistry. It's about commitment. It's about these things that are very intangible, very tacit. Um, but you know it when you see it and you know it when you're in it. It's a lot like being in love, right? It's It's one of those things that, yep, that's it right there. But I wouldn't be able to tell you why. That's probably my best answer on that. It's one of the best answers we've ever heard, to be honest. Um, it's not often you'll hear Irish people struggling to come out with words, so it obviously worked, Preston. Thanks. Preston, would like to say thanks very much for your time. Two of us really got an enormous amount from it. I'm sure our listeners will as well. Um, wishing all the very best. Stay well, stay healthy, and, and all the very best with all your future endeavors and projects. Really looking forward to seeing, seeing what unfolds. Thanks very much for having me on this, you guys. Um, your country, your your island is struggling right now. And I think things like this are really important to help people think about how to look after themselves. And so I think what you're doing is super important. So thank you. Thanks, you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.